well, consumer's boss, we took it to another level of keeping the consumer in the room so that we would make sure that we weren't spending time on things that really didn't matter to her. And we'd always ask ourselves, if she was sitting here, what would she think about what we're worrying about or spending money on? Would she find it valuable? And that was just a great way to really cut through a lot of things. It really forced us to not spend time on things that didn't matter to her. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, Humor Engineer. Roman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Joe Arcuri, the CEO of American Greetings. It was a great conversation about getting uncomfortable with the uncomfortable. But first, I want to tell you about the 2021 PNG Alumni Global Conference this November 12th and 13th, live from PNG's global headquarters in Cincinnati, Ohio, and broadcast around the world in real time. To celebrate its 20th anniversary, the PNG Alumni Network will once again bring together some of the world's leading thinkers and doers for insightful conversations and networking among thousands of PNG alumni and global PNG leaders. We're inviting you, our Learnings from Leaders loyal listeners, to be a part of this amazing PNG Alumni Global event. Come here from some of the most dynamic speakers and successful business leaders in the world. Visit conference.pgalums.com to learn more and use the special code PODCAST to receive $150 off your registration. To know what you're going to expect from the conference, you're going to hear from PNG CEO David Taylor, PNG CMO Mark Pritchard, as well as big alumni names like AG Laffley, Paul Pullman, and Ben O'Dor. Also joining the stage will be Katie Couric, Ariana Huffington, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, as well as PNG alumni leaders like GSK Consumer Healthcare CEO Brian McNamara, and many more to be announced. As a speaker, I attend a lot of conferences, and I have to tell you that the PNG Alumni Conference is one of my favorites. It's always got an incredible lineup of speakers, and it's great to be surrounded by talented leaders from around the world. And if you've ever thought, I wish some of these learnings from leaders' insights came with a little less Drew's voice, well, the conference is a great place to be because it's not going to be an interview. It's going to be them speaking. So what are you waiting for? Visit conference.pgalums.com to learn more and use the special code PODCAST to receive $150 off your registration. And we hope to see you at the PNG Alumni Network's next global conference this November 12th and 13th. But back to our conversation with Joe Arcuri, the CEO of American Greetings. It was a great conversation about getting uncomfortable with the uncomfortable. Here's a quick bio. Joe Curie is the CEO of American Greetings, which includes brands such as American Greetings, Papyrus, and Carlton Cards. He was previously the CMO of the PGA Tour and president of Home Solutions for Newell Rubbermaid. Joe began his career at Procter & Gamble, first in product development and later as brand manager, where he rose to be vice president and general manager of beauty care for Procter & Gamble's North America market. 
During his more than 30 years at PNG, he worked in global product development, marketing and management on brands such as Vix, Olay, Gillette, Old Spice, Secret, and Ivory. Joe has a degree in chemical engineering from Georgia Tech University and a MBA from Duke University. Joe also has a great track record for revitalizing brands and building strong, winning cultures. And these are two things that go hand in hand, I think, and also two things he talked about in our conversation. When it came to revitalizing brands, Joe talked about the importance of focus, and he even shared a very tactical strategy for how to focus, something I had never actually heard before, but I think is brilliant. Uh, Spoiler alert, it does involve a cardboard cutout. Joe also talked about what it means to build a strong winning culture and the importance of helping your team find fun in the work that they do. His primary strategy of emphasizing what's working as opposed to just calling out what's not really resonated with me and the improv mentality of yes and. There's a lot of great wisdom shared, so let's jump right in because I think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Joe Acuri. Joe, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Andrew, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to to talk a little bit about your career journey because it is a fascinating one. And for those who may already know your story, right, you graduated from Georgia Tech with a degree in chemical engineering, and you actually started working at Procter & Gamble in product development for a couple of years before going and getting your MBA from Duke University, leaving PNG, getting your MBA, and then coming back where you continued 30-year career journey with spending time in product development, marketing and management on brands such as Vix, Olay, Gillette, Old Spice, Secret, and Ivory. And then in 2014, you left and became the president of Newell Rubber Brand, uh, uh, Rubbermaid, excuse me. And then you moved to the PGA Tour as a CMO before now working as the CEO of American Greetings in 2019. So my first question for you, Joe, is, that the career you imagined growing up when you were growing up in New York? No, not, not at all. It's been a fantastic run and a career that I've been very fortunate to have just a great series of opportunities that for me has kept the learning curve vertical, if you will, and has presented some really fun puzzles to solve. But no, that wasn't the plan uh, growing up in New York. My dad was actually in aviation his entire life, and I thought for a while there I was going to be a pilot, but that obviously did not work out. But so while you know I've logged about two million miles in airplanes, it just wasn't in the cockpit. <laughs> uh, I love it. Yeah, just yeah, we're, I'm still going to be on planes a lot. I'm just going to be a little, little few rows back, exactly. not having to do quite all of that work up top. And so aside from aviation, was there anything else that you dreamed of being kind of as a kid? We were like, I'm going to grow up and become blank. No, it really was. I thought aviation pilot. I had a lot, as I said, my dad was in the Air Force and then he taught aviation. So it was a big part of our life growing up. But as I was going through school, I just had a very good experience with lots of different subjects, played lots of sports, played whatever was in season, baseball, football, basketball. I also had a school system that was had a great music program that really sparked the love of music and playing music, which I still do today. But at the essence of it, it was really fueled the love of learning and learning new things. And I think that's really what has marked my career and my passion of seeking out those new challenges you rattled off over the past 30 years. I like it. And so, yeah, I mean, whether it's regarding the music or even aviation, you know, are there any meaningful lessons you learned from growing up from your parents, from your dad or from one of your teachers? 
Well, really, this, this passion for learning and seeking out the new challenge, it really was something that was seated in me at an early stage and with my parents and teachers. I really enjoyed that part of the experience of you know, seeking out that new challenge. I'm probably much bit more comfortable in the uncomfortable, if you will. And so it's just that attitude of looking for that next challenge and next puzzle to solve really has fueled a lot of my decisions for my career. I like it. And so did that translate into like academic success? Is like, is that the type of learning where you're like, hey, you can actually do the the book and the tests and things like that? Or was it more of you said the I'm gonna learn music and I'm gonna play different sports? No, was it a little bit more away from the classroom or was it both? It was a little bit of both. I enjoyed the academic side of it, but it was really more of learning the the new skill or the new piece of knowledge. And really along the way, what I really enjoyed was being a part or of creating and participating in winning teams. I did that in the sports. When you're in a great band, it's like a winning team. And so I really enjoyed that part of the process. And really probably as I went through my career, enjoyed that part of leadership most of all, which is, you know, really that creation and, and participating in, in winning teams and teams that really gel together against a common goal. So it's been a very, very strong part of what I've done over the, the past couple of decades, I guess. Yeah, certainly the, the career kind of bears that out. And so what was it about chemical engineering that drew you to that aside from say aviation or music career in some way? Why go the direction of like, I'm going to play around with these molecules and things and engineer products and do R&D, that kind of stuff? Yeah. In high school, I really enjoyed science and math and chemistry in particular. For me, it was fascinating how things came together to make something new and different. So putting different elements together and you ended up with a compound that was not foreseen. And I knew when I went to school, I didn't want to go into the straight chemistry academic world of teaching and or research. So chemical engineering was a great way to do the application of it. And engineering is basically a journey in problem solving and a teaching of how to solve problems. And and I think that's what I've done through my career is gone into businesses and fixed things and found ways to rejuvenate brands or grow brands or open markets. And so it's been, been a great foundation. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And that's something I definitely want to talk about as we get to kind of some of the components of your career. But I'm curious how the your first role was, because you graduate with a degree in computer chemical engineering. I keep wanting to say computer engineering because that's what my degree was. I'm so used to saying it that way, but chemical engineering and started working at PNG in product development. And then you spent a couple of years there before getting your MBA. So was it hey, you started this role and realized it wasn't quite what you expected. Why the kind of short stint at PNG and then taking some time for your master's business administration? Yes. When I started in product development, I worked in our diapers area and a really great place to start and really started learning more about the company than anything. But I found myself, as we did in PG and I'm still sure they do today, is you work in a business team. And I felt myself always being drawn to what the brand person was doing and the marketing piece and really enjoying that part of the puzzle, if you will. And so I decided if I really want to get into that full-time, it would probably be beneficial to round up my engineering education and, and go back and get my business degree. And so that's what propelled me to do that. And was the intent always for you to kind of, because then you return to PNG, which isn't a common story. Most people, once they leave PNG, they don't always kind of go back 
to it, but was that kind of the intent from the get-go or were you like, I believe in this thing enough that even if it's not P&G, but some other company that I end up at marketing or more in this business space is where I want to be? No, I went in pretty wide open when I went back to school as far as um, looking at other companies. And during the recruiting process for summer internships, one of the companies that did come down was Richardson Vicks, which was owned by P&G at the time, but they recruited separately. And it provided me an opportunity, quite frankly, to get into the marketing space, but live at home and save some money for school. And so I was located in Connecticut, close to where I my house was in New York. And so it really was more of an economic decision at the time, but also giving the opportunity to get into the marketing space. And it worked out well because I had a great summer there and returned to that division at the time that was based in Connecticut. And from those early days, either in the the product development space or after you returned in the marketing space, is there any story or even a leader that stands out to you that kind of the lesson that you learned in that moment still sticks with you now, 30 plus years later? Well, it really was the basis of thinking about everything from the consumer-centric way. It's that way I really started to learn and the power of deep consumer understanding that obviously permeates everything we do today. And it's, I think it's the heart and soul of the P&G training, if you will. And that really has stuck with me that just, you really can't go wrong if you start with the consumer and really understand the motivations and what drives purchase decision, what are the purchase trial barriers and all those good things. So that was really just a tremendous foundation to have that early on. And as I say, I, I apply that today. Yeah. And that's, it's certainly one of the common refrains that we hear from different people is this mentality as consumer, as boss, et cetera. And so from your perspective or your kind of background, how do you actually learn that? Because it's one thing to say, yeah, we've got to really focus on this consumer. It's another thing to actually do the work to understand who that consumer is. And like you said, their purchase decision, their barriers, et cetera, for your kind of at least style today, how do you, how do you find that information? Well, as you know, there's so many consumer research tools out there today that vary from qualitative and quantitative perspective. But I think at the heart and soul of all of it is the ability to listen well and really listen behind the words of what the consumer is saying. There's no substitute for observing her, him or her using the product and seeing that in action. So I think there's no substitute, I think, for that real high touch aspect of consumer learning. And so while you can look at big reports and cut the numbers different ways and really hearing a consumer talk about your service or product is just so invaluable. And I make sure I carve out plenty of time to do that with my current role at American Greetings. And so while at P&G, you worked on some pretty impressive kind of iconic brands, certainly within the P&G portfolio of Vix, Olay, Gillette, Old Spice, Secret, Ivory, and more. Were there any that stand out to you in terms of, hey, this was a really proud, like you said, turnaround project, or this was a particularly challenging brand for one reason or the other? I really had a great opportunity as I started there to spend the majority of my career in healthcare and really helping to build the emerging personal healthcare business. When I started, it was actually called Toilet Goods. So it's come a long <laughs> way. And then it evolved, I think, to OTC Medicines and then personal healthcare. And I was there for, for all those moves. And it really was an a amazing run at the heart and soul of it with the Vicks Cough and Cold products. Then we added brands like Pepto-Bismol and Metamucil that came from Norwich Eaton and others. 
And then I really got to lead from hour one, the RX to OTC switch for Prilosec, which was just an amazing time for me personally as and one of my career highlights. And it really was because it was that very tough challenge to get something to go over the counter at the time. It was a long process, but we had a great team and I had a team focused on that singular thought and mission and really the power of keeping the consumer. We had something we called, and I was keeping the consumer in the room. Well, consumer's boss, we took it maybe another level of keeping the consumer in the room so that we would make sure that when we were having meetings, we weren't spending time on things that really didn't matter to her. And we'd always ask ourselves, if she was sitting here, what would she think about what we're worrying about or spending money on? Would she find it valuable? And that was just a great time to really and cut through a lot of things. We actually had a brand manager who, after hearing me say is the consumer in the room, I guess too many times, brought the cons- a cardboard cutout of our consumer in the room. Her name was Joanne. We knew her so well. And he would put her in the chair, in one of the chairs. And so we physically had her in there, <laughs> in the room. So when we, we, we really forced us to not spend time on things that didn't matter to her and, and really cut a lot of meetings short, which was great. Wow. That's such a great and a clear way to kind of focus on that strategy. That's what I love, right? Exactly like you said, we had this consumer's boss mentality, but to say, if they're in the actual room, what would it be? And for some of the listeners, if, they, if they're not familiar with the PNG background, we typically would take create target who's, right? Exactly to your point, like they would be given a name and all of that. But to be a cardboard printout in the room of like, what would this person think about what we're talking about right now? I think it's such a a powerful way to really make sure that you're focusing on what's important. Exactly. And we've evolved that. Obviously, I've taken that with me and used it to, as I say, you know, clarify a lot of things and spend time only and force myself to spend time only on what she would find valuable. And we have, now we have is not just keeping the consumer in the room, but we keep now the consumer on the Zoom until <laughs> we can get back to a room. So it works. It definitely works, man. I'm going to have to add, yeah, just add a new person joining the meeting. I'm like, this is the one that that really matters. I love it. And so you have a quite a successful career at P&G. And then after 30 years, you make the switch to Newell. And so I'm curious about that journey, because at that point, it kind of seems like, oh, it's a it's a career kind of at this single organization, why, what was it about the the challenge or the opportunity that said, this is something that I want to explore and, and see if maybe I can adapt some of what I've learned into a new business? Yeah, we really was at the heart of it was, I saw really the ability to take on a new challenge. I felt I was ready. I felt they had really filled the toolkit well over that time at P&G to bring something valuable to a new organization. And I really wanted to do that. Newell is a great organization. It is an eclectic collection of businesses. It runs the gamut from B2C to B2B businesses. And it really requires the ability to go in and and strip businesses down to really understand what makes them tick. And one doesn't look like the other. There's a writing division with Sharpie and PaperMate, Graco baby products, Rubbermaid storage. At the time, they were professional tools and so on. So to me, it was getting that learning curve vertical again 
And it stayed vertical the entire time I was there. But as I said, I'm probably more comfortable being uncomfortable. And it was just a really great challenge for me. Yeah, I love it. And so some of our listeners are kind of at that stage. You're wondering what's a little bit next. And so for these opportunities, as you think about whether it was the move internally within P&G to certain brands or to Newell or to the PGA Tour or now to American Greetings, have these been things that you're like, hey, I'm ready for something new. And so you're outwardly seeking them. Or are they more of opportunities that someone just calls and is like, hey, do you want this? What's the balance of actually, one, finding the opportunities? And then two, what's your metric for saying, okay, this is the one that I want to take versus say something else that might come up? Yeah, it's been a combination of both. What I've found as, as I have moved to other organizations or considered other organizations along the way you can't overemphasize the need to really make sure there's a cultural fit or a cultural aspect that you find as passionate and fitting as the business itself that the company's in. It's harder to get at than the business part of it as you, when you're looking at something new. You need to talk to as many people as you can who had worked there or worked there, but it really isn't something you fully understand until you're in it. But it does ultimately make the difference that I've found. And whether or not you find a fit and and something that not only challenges you intellectually from a business standpoint, but also allows you to grow and lead in new ways in a way that you're comfortable doing, especially when you come from a such a strong culture like a PNG with strong purpose, values, and principles, you really realize how important those are to you when you are in other organizations and how you view things in the world and view things in a company. So I would highly recommend that you try to get as much information, not just on the business or the new company, but on the actual culture and the way of working. I think that's a great reminder. I think so often we think of just the business component of it, but yeah, that cultural fit is important and cultural in general is in fact, one of the things that you're known for, and this was part of what people talked about with the higher ed American greetings was the ability to build strong teams that work together and create a winning culture. So I'm curious from your perspective, what does a winning culture mean? And how as a leader, do you actually build it? Yeah, that has been always the challenge I've found going into a new organization is first almost doing that kind of cultural assessment of what's the culture here? What are the positive aspects that are contributing to productive and collaborative growth versus the ones that are you know working against that? Because you're usually coming into an organization, especially at a senior leadership level, to accelerate growth. So not everything's working perfectly. (laughs) And so you have to figure out what's helping and what's hurting. And so for me, that has always been job one when I come into a new organization is to try to figure out what are the cultural building blocks that are worth building on and keeping what things are obviously getting in the way. So for me, building a winning team is all about that. And I have found that the power of a great attitude is really at the essence of a winning team. And that attitude of what I call playing to win, which is really powerful. I never liked the term brand stewardship. I always thought it was kind of too passive and it didn't encourage risk and pushing forward on how best to evolve a brand or stay relevant to grow a brand. And so this attitude of playing to win is so important. And so I look for that. I try to feel that I think you feel it by having very clear mission objectives and allowing people then to go against that, those objectives and giving them the space to think and do what they believe is right to deliver 
and then supporting them obviously all along the way. There's a lot that's interesting about that because at least the language or the, the way that you're framing it is you're looking for what's working and trying to fuel that. So is it more of kind of, yes, this is what works. Let's do more of that. Or is it more of a, this is terrible. Don't do these things. It doesn't lead to results. Is it a combination of both? Because I, I feel like a lot of times it would be easy to go in and be like, these are all the things not working. Stop doing it. But there's something really compelling about the idea that you said, no, fuel the things that are working. Yeah, I've always found it's more helpful to reinforce the positives and then spend time doing the assessment of the negatives. And so I think the way I have found it, it's helpful perhaps to do that is just focus on those things that you think will make the difference. And I lead with a very kind of frequency, a message frequency, very <laughs> what I think is important. And I kind of am pretty repetitive with those messages. And so I think it is about reinforcing the things because there's always a, a lot of great things in all these organizations that is working really well. And I do think, again, the power of focus is really what matters. Yeah. And it's very much an improv mentality of yes and. That's what it kind of reminds me of is the you, you can yes but things and be like, here's all everything that's wrong versus yes and is kind of like, well, I'm going to focus on the things that are going well and let's create more of that and it does tend to create a little bit of a more positive energy. And, and so in this question of culture, because you also play, you kind of, you say playing to win, there's a game element to it. I'm curious, do you think it's important for people to enjoy what they do in their work? Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, passion, having passion for what you're doing is the secret sauce of, of being successful. I think there's the unbeatable combination of passion and hard work. And so I think one of the key elements of leadership is to create that energy, just that fun, high energy environment. You have to be very authentic though, because I think nothing is quickly more quickly sniffed out by organizations than the lack of authenticity. But if you're passionate and keep it fun, I think it's critically important. Yeah. And that's going to be my, my next question is like, okay, if it is important to help people enjoy what they do, how do you do that? And it sounds like part of it is, is living it and breathing yourself. And now a word from our sponsor the 2021 PNG Alumni Global Conference. This November 12th and 13th, live from PNG's global headquarters in Cincinnati and broadcast around the world in real time. To celebrate its 20th anniversary, the PNG Alumni Network will once again bring together some of the world's leading business thinkers and doers for insightful conversation among thousands of PNG alumni and global PNG leaders. We're inviting you, our learnings from leader, loyal listener, to be part of this amazing PNG Alumni Global event. Come hear from some of the most dynamic thinkers and successful business leaders in the world. Visit conference.pgalums.com to learn more. Use the special code PODCAST to receive $150 off your registration. You'll hear from PNG CEO David Taylor, PNG CMO Mark Pritchard, as well as big alumni names like AG Lapley, Paul Pullman, and Ben Odor. Also joining the stage will be Katie Couric, Ariana Huffington, and YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, as well as PNG alumni leaders like GSK President Brian McNamara, Women's MLS Commissioner Lisa Baird, and many more to be announced. Look, I'm not sure if you've ever been to a PNG Alumni Global Conference, but it is truly one of the best conferences I've ever been to. Not only is it a chance to reconnect with many old friends and hear some amazing learnings from leaders, 
in a non-podcast format, but it's also a chance to network and connect with a lot of new alumni that you might not already know. The Global Conference is actually how I personally got introduced to the PG Alumni Network. So in a way, this podcast wouldn't even exist without the Global Conferences. I cannot recommend enough that you make plans for November 12th and 13th to attend the PG Alumni Global Conference. So what are you waiting for? Visit conference.pgalums.com to learn more and use the special code podcast to receive $150 off your registration. We hope to see you at the PG Alumni Network's next global conference this November 12th and 13th. And now back to our show. But I'm curious, like, so for example, even with American Greetings, especially over the, the past year plus, it's been a particularly challenging time. Anything that you've learned that or that you've applied that has helped to keep that passion and high energy and that that sense of fun, despite the the challenges that we as a society are facing? Yes. Well, what's wonderful about American Greetings and what drew me to it again, as I've looked at other opportunities along the way and, and gone to these different organizations is, is its mission and its vision, which is you know, to make the world a more thoughtful and caring place. And that's what it's been for decades. And the power of connections. And I don't think there's a time in our recent history where that's even more important than the ability to connect with one another and show caring and thoughtfulness. And that's what American Greetings products do. And so we have continued to rally around that mission and we've rallied around it even more this past year and seen that the consumer has rewarded us for that by participating at even higher levels with our products, by sending cards that some of our highest card usage is on just the gratitude occasion, if you will, and and saying thank you and showing support. And so it's been a really wonderful opportunity to play a, very, a small role in people's lives through all this the past year of you know providing some creative tools for them to just say thank you and and support each other. Yeah, I think gratitude is one of those things that can seem simple or, or that kind of thing when you think about it, but it's such a powerful way to encourage certain behaviors or to your point to create connection is because there's not only a thoughtfulness to it, but there's the gratitude component to it. So I think that's a, a fantastic example of it. And you kind of mentioned that the mission of American Greetings has been around for a while. And so one of the things I'm curious about is because you've worked at some pretty established iconic organizations. So PNG started in 1837. The PGA Tour has been around since 1929. Noel Brand since 1903. CEO, you're now the CEO of American Greeting, which was founded initially in 1906. So when you're coming in as someone, because to your point, new CEO typically suggests or new role suggests maybe there's some opportunity in some way, whether it's a turnaround or a growth or that kind of stuff. How do you balance the history of that some of these organizations or brands might have with finding a new way to adapt and evolve to whatever is going on with the, the consumer. Yeah, I think that is definitely the challenge. And what I've said, what I was talking about earlier about finding what were the what are those building blocks that are really just need to continue to be nourished and you stand upon and all that history. There's so much there that's foundational that you don't want to change that is really at the essence of why these companies have been around for so long. But then again, there is the need to how do I stay relevant in today's world and how do I shape that voice in a different way so that you can add to that history timeline and put the next decade on the company 
And so it is a matter of really understanding the role your brands or brand plays in today's world. And that's what we've done, for example, at American Greetings is we recognize that the paper greeting card purchase frequency is down as with new generations, obviously, since the phone is in everyone's hand. But there's really a a very tactile, more meaningful way to connect than a text, which are the ability to write notes and send cards. But we've also developed a very strong digital e-card business in order to address a different way of connecting, but also recognizing that that's a new relevant way to do it. So it's I think you just have to have a very light touch where needed, but also you're there to shape it to survive the next hundred years. And I think that's why you need to not be afraid to change some things. Yeah, it's a great point. And also recognizing that they serve different roles. I've never once printed out a text message that I've gotten as sweet as the the message might be, but I have a whole (laughs) stack of cards that I've saved, the tactile feel, like you said, and being able to adapt. And so speaking of kind of adapting, I'm curious from your side, one of the questions that we have from our listeners oftentimes is this kind of balance of work and life and whether you call it work-life balance or work-life harmony. I know one of the things is we were chatting a little bit earlier, big into music, et cetera, like as a CEO of an organization, especially in a time of a lot of change, is there a work-life balance? Like, What does it look like for you in terms of managing the day-to-day work, but also the personal side of things? Yeah, it's always a challenge, I think. I'm not a big fan of the word balance. I think it's about choices and making the choice at the moment of what you find to be most important. I've been very fortunate. I have a great life partner with my wife, Maria, for over 30 years. And we've always approached everything as a team through all these career moves and geographical moves. But our first choice is family first. And so in those moments, and they come up a lot with kids' activities and all that. I mean, I've chosen to spend time on on that first. And while I'm very happy with my career progression. For me, it came down to making the choices that in the moment, in the day, that week, that month. I think I've, what I've balanced with is I've said I, I kind of found out early that it's if I focused on results versus hours in the chair, that probably will work out okay. So I really, if I chose to do a family activity, I would feel I could, as long as I'm getting delivering good results, if I'm two hours less in the office, that's probably okay. Yeah. And I think that that is, it's certainly a, a mentality that I felt at P&G as well as, yeah, it's less about, are you there from eight to six or whatever, but are you delivering against that work plan? And so is that kind of the same mentality or the same type of lesson you try to share with your people? Because I think as a leader, that's one of the other challenges is because it is such a choice, it is such a personal decision. How are you supporting that for the people reporting to you, because it can be easy for some of them to be like, oh, I'm going to just work all the time, but that's not necessarily long-term sustainable. Yeah, I think you have to model it. I mean, visibly model it by you're not about time in the office, you're about results and helping them sort through which are the most critical things to get done. And the and I, I'm a big, again, believer of the power of focus. I think there's only really in any brand I've worked on or business, there's you know, only a few things that truly make the difference in growing it. The hard work is figuring out what those are. But once you do, really being very protective of focusing your, your time on those few things that really matter. And as a result, should 
keep you from spending a lot of what I call just activity time that really doesn't score any points and allow you to then free that time up to do the other things that you find important in your life. Yeah, which I think is a great reminder for many of us, to your point, across any product or brand or service, it is probably those key things and finding that way of focus, of which case you can get a cardboard cutout of your consumer and make sure that they're in the room, I think is a great strategy of reminding of that focus. So Joe, as we start to to wrap up a little bit, we do like to ask a few kind of just quicker questions to get to know the human side of things. So I know you are big into music and is there an instrument that you just absolutely love to play more than others or one that you always kind of wished you had learned? Well, I'm a, I'm a drummer. I've been playing drums since probably eight years old, played in a bunch of bands through college. And it's just for me is my personal passion. And so I can play a little keyboard, a little guitar, but I'm definitely a drummer at heart. I love it. I love it. As someone who is not so great with rhythm, drums were always hard. I played saxophone for a while, but drum, I was always impressed with when you can kind of have the different limbs doing different beats at different times. Like I have no idea how, what's going on in that person's brain to be able to make it, make it happen. What is your go-to form of escape? If you need to de-stress a little bit or just take a, a moment for yourself, are you watching movies, reading books, watching TV, listening to podcasts, something else? I'm either playing drums or I cycle. I'm a big into cycling and I find that just the best stress reliever to get on the bike and go out for a couple hours. So I try to do that. Obviously, when the weather's nicer, I'll do that indoors when it's not. Okay. Like my wife is a cyclist and she's recently been playing with Zwift with the online cycling yes. thing, which is exactly. kind of, yeah, fun gamification of, to your point of playing hard, et cetera. That's a fun way to play, but also get exercise. Who is someone you'd like to grab a coffee with or have a conversation with? I'd love to sit down with Tim Cook. As we talked today, if you think about, first of all, some big shoes to fill coming in. How did he, and he had been with the company before, obviously for a while, but how do you sort through what's working um, from a cultural standpoint to continue not and to preserve that incredible innovation engine, but also know that you have to continue to evolve and set it up for the next couple of decades. So that would be an interesting coffee. That is a, a great point, especially in that context, asking those questions, I think would be a fascinating conversation. And finally, as we close out, what is one final piece of advice or perhaps even a challenge that you would leave for the next generation of leaders? I'd say never stop learning. I would seek out the uncomfortable and the new challenge. I think not only your career, but your life will be more interesting and richer. Yeah. Like you said, getting comfortable in the uncomfortable, seeking out the new challenge as an improviser that definitely resonates with me of finding it. And I love that focus on learning and growth. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode with Learnings with Leaders. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com.
Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. I always had the attitude that I had to work harder just to get to the same place as my male counterparts. And I think most groups entering new cultures have to do that. But what men need to understand is that all minority groups, all outsiders, bring fresh thinking and something important to the table. If you've got 12 white men sitting around the table, you have, by and large, one way of thinking. And if you bring one woman, one person of color, one person with different sexual orientation, they're going to bring different thoughts to the table and the table is going to be stronger. Some of my biggest contributions were because I thought differently and because I wasn't included in the normal boys clubs, I didn't even know not to speak my own mind. I spoke my own mind all the time. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.